Bringing a novel therapeutic to market is an art. Hear Veristat thought leaders as they draw on their specialized expertise to offer insight on timely, relevant topics that impact clinical development, the regulatory landscape, and patient access to these novel therapies. Hello, and welcome to the ART Podcast, Advancing Revolutionary Therapies, a podcast series presented by the Centers of Excellence at Veristat. My name is Kevin Hennigan, Director of North American Regulatory Affairs. I'm delighted to continue Season 3, a dedicated series of regulatory podcasts on topics that cover everything from smart regulatory strategies, maintaining continued regulatory compliance, the influence of health authorities on clinical trials, and more. Today, I am joined by Ellen Truitt and Aaron Flynn, two of our regulatory strategists here at Veristat, to provide an overview of biosimilars development in the U.S. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here, Kevin. The development of biosimilars products in the U.S. has been progressing since the regulatory pathway was established as part of the Affordable Care Act. At the time of this recording, FDA has approved 39 biosimilar products, and the number of active biosimilar development programs has been climbing steadily. For our listeners who may be less familiar with this category, what is a biosimilar, and how does it compare to generic drugs? You can't really talk about biosimilars without first talking about generics. Generics are identical copies of approved small molecules, which are more easily characterized and can be identically synthesized. A biosimilar, in contrast, is a proposed biologic that is, quote, highly similar to an approved biologic. Biologics are large, complex molecules that are manufactured in living systems, like CHO cells, for example, and they have inherent variations batch-to-batch in structural components mainly the result of post-translational modifications in the living system. Thus, instead of being an identical copy, biosimilars have to prove through extensive analysis that they are highly similar to the reference product. How do you go about demonstrating that a biosimilar is highly similar to that reference product? FDA recommends a stepwise approach to demonstrating biosimilarity, with the foundation of this being your structural and functional analytical similarity exercises. Sponsors of biosimilars must conduct extensive in vivo and in vitro analyses with both their proposed biosimilar and lots they have sourced of the reference product and evaluate them head to head. These analyses evaluate critical quality attributes that define the pharmacologic activity, potency, and purity of the proposed biosimilar and the reference product. Sponsors must also consider the role of animal data in assessing the toxicity and immunogenicity of the biosimilar. Non-clinical studies are not always required for a biosimilar program. However, the degree to which your analytical similarity exercises demonstrate biosimilarity will inform as to what may be required. If the analytical similarity data are strong, it may be possible to justify limited non-sacrificial toxicology studies. Again, any non-clinical studies should evaluate the biosimilar and the reference product head-to-head. Would you say that while some non-clinical studies may not be expressly required for biosimilars, they may still be advisable prior to starting human clinical trials? I would say they are advisable. The sponsor will still want to demonstrate to the FDA that they have done enough work to de-risk and justify their human studies. And that's the final step. FDA expects biosimilar sponsors to conduct a comparative pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, and immunogenicity study of the biosimilar and the reference product, again, head-to-head. Changing topics a little bit, biosimilar products can have this additional designation of being interchangeable. What is the difference between a regular biosimilar and an interchangeable product? 
An interchangeable product is a biosimilar that meets additional, more rigorous requirements. In addition to the biosimilarity exercises required for a typical biosimilar, an interchangeable biosimilar is expected to demonstrate that the proposed product will produce the same clinical result as the reference product in any given patient, and that for a product that is administered more than once, switching between the reference product and the interchangeable biosimilar does not increase safety risk or decrease efficacy. This is typically demonstrated by conducting a comparative clinical efficacy study with crossovers performed between the reference product and the proposed biosimilar product. FDA has described a type of study which is recommended for demonstrating interchangeability, where one arm receives treatment with the biological reference product throughout the study, and another arm crosses over between the reference product, the proposed biosimilar, and then back to the reference product through the same treatment period. In addition, there are also differences in the way biosimilars and interchangeable biosimilars are prescribed. A biosimilar product must be specifically prescribed by a healthcare provider, while an interchangeable can be swapped with a reference product at the pharmacy without notifying the prescriber, much like generics. How much variability is actually allowed between the reference product and the proposed biosimilar from an analytical and a clinical perspective? From the analytical perspective, it's a very complicated picture. The allowable variance margins depend on the critical quality attribute being assessed, and these CQAs are ranked in three tiers as to their criticality and potential for clinical impact. Tier 1 CQAs, like amino acid sequence, protein concentration, and potency, need to be nearly equivalent between the biosimilar and the reference product. The expected equivalence margin is plus or minus 1.5 standard deviations from the mean with a 90% confidence interval. For tier 2 CQAs, like higher order structure or oxidized variants, which have some potential to impact clinically, but less so than tier 1, the variance margin expected is plus or minus 3 standard deviations from the mean, again with a 90% confidence interval. Lastly, for tier 3 CQAs, like truncated variants, side-by-side comparisons are still necessary, but if they have no impact clinically, it is perfectly acceptable to have minor differences between the biosimilar and the reference product. Still, this means that tier 3 CQAs must have strong scientific justification for a lack of impact on clinical outcomes. From the clinical perspective, the pharmacological parameters evaluated should be within 80 to 125 percent of that observed with the biological reference product. With respect to immunogenicity parameters, such as the formation of like anti-drug and neutralizing antibodies, FDA has granted approval to products where the 95 percent confidence interval was within 10 percent. How many batches actually need to be evaluated to demonstrate biosimilarity? FDA guidance recommends that at least 10 batches of the reference product and at least 6 to 10 batches of the biosimilar product should be used, but oftentimes many more batches are used in order to meet the confidence interval expected for the analytical similarity exercises. I know you've mentioned to me in the past that some sponsors have used significantly more than 10 batches in their programs. What's the largest number of batches you've seen? I've seen upwards of 80 batches of reference products used to support biosimilarity. In the course of these evaluations, what happens if the proposed biosimilar product is actually better than the reference drug? You can't actually be approved as a biosimilar if you are superior to the reference product. You must neither be inferior nor superior to the reference product to be considered a biosimilar. 
In the case where a sponsor's proposed biosimilar demonstrates superiority, which would still be very good, they would need to submit a standard 351A BLA and would need to support that BLA with the level of data which is expected for new products or entities and not quite the same as a biosimilar. For small molecule drugs, sponsors are allowed to rely on FDA's findings of safety and efficacy to skip evaluation of certain types of studies and risks. Is that type of approach permitted under the biosimilars pathway? Yes, but for only some types of studies. For example, safety pharmacology, reproductive and developmental tox, carcinogenicity studies, human QT, QTC studies, and other studies like those generally do not need to be conducted for the biosimilar candidate, provided analytical similarity has been well established. Are there any variations to the product that are acceptable for a biosimilar? Minor differences between the biosimilar and the reference product are acceptable as long as there are no clinically meaningful differences as a result. These minor differences can include glycosylation patterns, truncated NRC terminals, holding patterns, or even the final formulation of the drug, as long as there's no impact to clinical safety or efficacy. What do you recommend to sponsors that they consider when developing a potency assay to establish similarity to a biological reference drug, considering that you don't have access to the innovator's potency assay? Biosimilars developers do have to develop their own potency assay and compare the assay results directly between their product and the reference drug. You may be able to get some hints about the type of potency assay used for the reference product through published information, including FDA review documents, but more importantly, the assays you choose to develop should be functional assays and should be relevant to the product's mechanism of action. How much does this biosimilars pathway reduce overall program cost and development timeline? It can be very expensive to develop and manufacture biologics under any circumstance. A typical biosimilar will take six to nine years to develop and will still cost upwards of $100 million or more. In comparison, original biologics typically take some 10 to 12 years to develop, and the cost is usually in the hundreds of millions. So a sponsor would save some cost and time in the development of a biosimilar, since there is that lessened emphasis on robust clinical efficacy data, and there would be less time spent conducting phase one and two studies. However, the amount of data required for the 351K BLA submission for a biosimilar is still quite large in comparison to what would be included in an ANDA. So a sponsor cannot expect to save as significant of an amount of time or money like they might for a generic small molecule. The true financial benefit for biosimilar product development is upon arrival to market, especially if you're the first biosimilar to a particular reference biologic. And there you're referencing the potential for market exclusivity for biosimilars, right? Yeah. So only the first approved biosimilar for a particular biologic can obtain market exclusivity. And that market exclusivity is granted for one year starting at the date of commercial product launch. Another important set of financial considerations for biosimilars developments are the user fees, which unlike innovator products are assessed while the product is still in development. How much are those user fees currently and when are they triggered? Indeed, there are fees. There's an initial and annual user fee for sponsors of biosimilar products. The initial biosimilar product development fee is due when the sponsor submits an IND application 
or within seven days after FDA grants the first biosimilar product development meeting or BPD meeting, whichever comes first. Once the sponsor has paid the initial user fee, there is also an annual fee assessed for the product each fiscal year that the biosimilar program is active. And these fees are laid out in the Biosimilars User Fee Act, or what we abbreviate as BASUFA, which gives the FDA the authority to assess and collect those user fees. The current fiscal year's initial and annual fee is $47,325, which will remain in effect until September of next year in 2023. Each year, FDA reassesses the statutory fee and adjusts it for inflation or other factors. Aaron, you mentioned biosimilar product development meetings. These are a little different from the type A, type B, type C, type D meetings that our listeners may be familiar with. Can you summarize the types of meetings that are available to biosimilar programs and their basic parameters? Sure. There are five types of BASUFA meetings for biosimilar products. There is the Biosimilar Initial Advisory Meeting, or BIA meeting, and then BPD type 1, type 2, type 3, and type 4 meetings. The BIA meeting is similar to a pre-IND meeting and is used to assess the initial feasibility of the proposed biosimilar for the 351k pathway. And FDA expects data from at least one lot of biosimilar and reference product tested, but extensive analysis is not going to be conducted at this meeting. A BPD type 1 meeting is analogous to a PDUFA type A meeting used for stall programs. A BPD type 2 meeting is analogous to a PDUFA type C meeting to discuss any specific issues in an ongoing program. A BPD type 3 meeting is unique to BASUFA, and this is a really in-depth review of all analytical similarity data with a preliminary evaluation of the analytical similarity exercise performed by FDA. Finally, a BPD type 4 meeting is analogous to a pre-NDA or a pre-BLA PDUFA meeting. Of note, the BIA meeting does not incur the initial biosimilar product development fee, but any other BPD type meeting does. In addition, one thing that is unique to all BASUFA programs is that the meeting request and the meeting package must be submitted at the same time for FDA to approve a meeting. This is unlike most PDUFA meetings where the meeting package is submitted up to 50 days after submission of the meeting request. Thank you very much, Ellen and Aaron. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the development of biosimilar products continues to grow in the U.S., and the market for these products has been projected by some to exceed $100 billion by 2028. So I think this is a topic we are going to be continuing to talk about for many years to come. So I really appreciate both of your insights here. For our listeners, as you have heard, Veristat has significant direct experience with the development of biosimilar products and can help you develop a detailed strategic plan customized to your product that will reduce your regulatory risk. I encourage you to listen to future episodes of our podcast series and to reach out through the links available on the Veristat website if you have any questions. You can also subscribe to Art Podcasts on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Art Podcasts on your favorite podcast player today.